Okay, this, this uh, morning, or this morning, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter six, four through eight. Uh, I appreciate Brandon keeping the class going and not uh, not having any break in the in the uh, in the text. And he took the first part of this this well, actually, this goes on for a while. But uh, this is uh, this is one of the uh, one of the warning passages, and it's a warning against apostasy. And apostasy is basically defined in Christian terms, as turning away from uh, from God who you've once professed. It doesn't mean you are a believer, and in fact, the, f- the fact of the matter is that believers can't lose their salvation. We'll talk about that a little bit as we move into this. We know we're secure in our salvation. But within every, every assembly, I would think, probably, uh, there are those who act like, dress like, And maybe even think they're Christians. Uh, But the fact of the matter is, they are not. And uh, as we we look at this this text, in the greater context here, he's already talked about the immaturity of this assembly, which would be a, a fertile ground for apostates to be. It would also be a very fertile ground for false teachers to get enter into, but that's not what, what we're talking about here. We're talking about people who, who once professed Christ, but then turned away and went another way. That's, that's who we're talking about here. And Scripture is just replete with, uh, with warnings about this, from the very fact of people that go all the way to the point that they're standing before Christ in judgment and telling Him all the wonderful things they did in His name, and He says, I don't have a clue who you are. Go away. You know? That's apostasy. That's what this is talking about. There's that group. And then, then there, there, there are others. Uh, that Matthew, Matthew chapter 7 talks of that, about that. And then in the parable of the wheat and tares, we're told that there are those that Satan has planted within us that grow up. And it's hard to tell the difference until, until the angels come and do the judgment and pull the tares out. Incidentally, we're not called to be tear pullers. We're we're, we're called to disciple. Uh, but, uh, uh, and, and, then the, and then Paul tells all of us, and he's talking to believers when he says this. He says, test yourself. Make sure you're in the faith. You know, there, there is that important, that important idea here is that make sure that it's true. I, I've said this a couple of times, I think, in this class, but... Dr. J. Vernon McGee used to say the two surprises in heaven, who's not there and who is there. Those are the two big surprises. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Peter tells us to, uh, tells us to, to make sure our calling and election is sure. Those are, those are the things that, uh, uh, that are, are, are emphasized. And that's what this text is about. It's a warning passage to those who hang around the church but are not and who will probably go away and the and the and the circumstance of going away and it's dire it's absolutely dire and when we get to chapter 10 he makes it very clear of the fate of those people and incidentally it is far worse to have known who Christ is and reject him than to have never known and and that's the your Judged according to light, incidentally. That's kind of the idea here. So as we come into this text, that's what we're going to be looking at. And I broke it down in verses 4 and 5. 
It's the advantages, but the reality is for those who apostate, it's the disadvantages. Because they were given those advantages and they ignored them. And then it goes on from there to, to the danger, the danger of apostasy, what, what, what happens as a result of it. And then he uses a very, uh, a very uh, earthly, weather-connected uh, illustration at the end to, uh, to kind of drive his point home. So that's, uh, that's how we're going to look at the text this morning as, as, we, uh, as we get there. And, and Warren, can I ask you to open us in prayer, please? Heavenly Father, we do appreciate that you have given us teachers and given us uh, people who love your word and who are able to interpret it and, and allow us to understand uh, your desire for us to be part of your family. We do thank you for that and thank you for all the care that you give each one of us on a daily basis. Be with us as we enjoy your word today and as we bring it into our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So as we come into this, and we're going to pick up in verse 4, of course, in the, in the previous verses, he's, he's talked about uh, leaving the elementary doctrines. I don't know how, how Brandon carried that on because my computer doesn't have sound on it, so I couldn't listen to the tape. <laughs> but at any, rate, at any rate, basically, those ideas that he's talked about there, those were, those were, they've been Christianized by a lot of commentators, but understand that when that book was written and who he was written to. He was, write, he was writing to Jewish Hebrews in the first century. They understood that from the Old Testament. Those are Old Testament teachings that he's talking about there, the washings. And, it, and it's not baptism. If you have a Bible that translates it baptism, it's not baptismo. It's, it's the word for, like, washing your hands. That's, that's the word that's used there. Uh, but the laying on of hands and all that, that was the idea of that's how they gave the sacrifices, so on and so forth. So he's saying, we move the elementary teachings of, of Judaism behind. That's, and that's who he's talking to. Because he's, he's not talking to a bunch of Gentiles. He's talking to Jews. That's who he's, this book is, is addressing. And he's saying, we leave those behind. And, and, and he, goes, he goes on, and we leave, the, we leave the Jewish Old Testament understandings behind, and we grasp the teachings of Messiah and how, how they are fulfilled in him. That's, that's what he's wanting them to do. And then he, he goes on to say, if God permits, under the permissive will of God, that, that's, that they grasp this instruction. And he says, then he says in verse 4, where we're going to begin today, he says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up in contempt for the land that has drunk the rain Excuse me. That often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated. Receive a blessing from God, but if it bears thorns and thistles, thistles, it is worthless, and is and it is near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So he begins in verses four and five by talking about these advantages, and I'm not going to. We're really going to pick up the opening remarks. When we get to verse 6, because we need to kind of bring it together, because basically the first, the first few words for leaving, or excuse me, uh, uh, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, it's, it, 
it picks that back up in verse 6. You could just leave the rest of that out. He's explaining what it is, but he says, and have fallen away. Those who have once been and have fallen away. So we'll pick it up in verse 6. So for right now, uh, he's just saying those, in the case of those who have received the following advantages of the church, of being in the Christian assembly, of being associated with other Christians, uh, these are the five, uh, the five advantages that they have. First of all, he says they've been enlightened. Notice very carefully something about these two verses. Nowhere in these verses do you hear redeemed, sanctified, justified, regenerated. None of the words of salvation are used in this text. Uh, they're very nonspecific. Uh, this, word that's trans- this word that's used here, that's translated in the English, enlightened, is, 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 uh, is a, a word that means to give light by knowledge or teaching. It carries the idea of being aware of with no indication of a response. In other words, it's kind of like when you studied U.S. history in high school. You heard the words, but you really didn't care. <laughs> you know, you're, you know that's, that's the idea of this word. It means you sat under instruction and you heard what they said, but it doesn't indicate that you either said, hey, this is for me, or no, this is not. It just means you heard it. You took it in. Uh, you, you, you had a time around it. They spent time. These are people who heard the word, ultimately, is what he's, what he's talking about here. Uh, <clears throat> in John chapter 12, uh, beginning at verse, uh, well, you've got to pick up the whole context. Uh, Jesus is talking about his crucifixion in, in this chapter. Uh, about being lifted up, starting in verse 27, and he's talk, he's teaching through that. And about verse 25, let's pick it. Let's see. Let's pick it up at. Uh, well, let's pick it up at verse 34. So the crowd answered him, "We have heard from the law that the Christ must remain forever. How can you say then the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man?" So Jesus said to them, "The light is among you." For a little while longer, walk while you have light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And then the remainder, then then in verse, the remainder of verse 36 and verse 37, he says, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. That, that's the picture here. Uh, they've, they've been around it. Uh, they've had teaching, but they didn't believe. And then in oh, 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter writes, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20, uh, Peter writes, For if after they have escaped the defilement of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better if they never have known the way of righteousness. After knowing it, they turned back from the holy commandments delivered to them. That's that's the picture of these people here. That's who he's talking about. People who sat under teaching 
People who, who heard the word, who heard who Jesus is, and then they walked away. That's, that's who he's talking about. Now, that's the picture uh, that is being, that is being, uh, being, uh, being, gi- being given here. Years ago, uh, I had a, my parents, uh, when, after they had retired, well, my dad, he didn't want to retire. And so he had a business, and he kept going until he was about 70. And then he finally decided it was time to get out, and so he retired. And they moved to Arizona, and we helped move them. And this one fellow by the name of Dave, who was a close friend of my brother, my youngest brother, and uh, uh, just to kind of give the difference in things, I'm 18 years older than my youngest brother, so it was quite a, quite a distance there. He, he came and helped move, uh, help us move, and he rode back with me in the truck. And, and uh, somewhere just outside of Prescott, Arizona, he started asking me questions about the gospel. And he got, I don't know how long it took to get from Prescott to L.A., but that's how long of a theology lesson he got. We did stop for lunch. Uh, but uh, uh, he, didn't, he didn't actually commit at that time. And I told him he did eventually. But at that time, he didn't. And I told him when I got done, and this, this is a true statement. I think this text bears it out. I told him, I said, you know, today I'm either your best friend or your worst enemy because you're now responsible. You know what the Bible says. It's up to you what you're going to do with it. Well, it's really up to the Holy Spirit. But nevertheless, uh, from his terms, you know, terminology, he did come to faith. But that's the truth. You know, uh, we're either their best friend or their worst enemy because now they're accountable. And that's what this is talking about, accountability here. And then, in, and then in, he goes on to say that they tasted the heavenly gift. Second uh, Corinthians 5.19 speaks of, uh, of God's inexpressible gifts. Uh, Ephesians 1, 3 and following speaks of the blessings that come from God. And 2, 8 goes on to say uh, that it's the grace that saves. That's, that's the gift of God. But this speaks of a taste. Uh, they sampled. They didn't feast. They didn't sit down at the table and eat the meal. They sampled. It's like going to uh, Baskin Robbins, you know, and they got all those different kinds of ice cream. And you don't know which one you want, so the, she takes that little spoon and she gives you a taste. She doesn't give you a bowl of it. You've got to buy that. You get a taste. That's what this is saying. This is saying they got a little bit of a sample. They got a taste of it. But they didn't take the meal. And that's really the the thrust that is going to run through the rest of this passage because you're going to use this taste of several times. But yeah, I'm so sorry. Is that is that the second of the advantages? That oh yeah, that's the second advantage. They tasted the heavenly gift. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I I even have that written down. But nevertheless, uh, but but. Uh, 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 they didn't feast. Uh, Jesus said in, in John six fifty one that he was the bread of life to eat and live. That's that's the idea here. Uh, they they didn't do that. Uh, they they failed to do that. And then he uses this next one, and this is one that has caused a lot of people confusion. And this is one where people kind of think you can lose your salvation, um, but the wording is somewhat problematic in English. It says partakers of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the word partake here is not koinonia. It's not fellowship in. It's not close association with. It's not that fellowship that believers have in the Spirit. It's not the 
the Philippians' use of that word. Uh, it's, 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 it's a different Greek word, and it's a word that means to be associated with, to be around. He kind of hung around. We kind of hung around. But we were never, never connected. It doesn't have the idea of connection with. It just has the idea of association with. You know, it's like being in a firm and you're an associate in that firm. You don't own the firm. You're not really part of the firm. You're just associated with it. That's, that's the idea here. And that's the idea of this word. He says, he says they were associated. They were, they were in the area where they saw the working of the Holy Spirit. You know, you can't be in the church and not see it. You're going to see the outworking of the Holy Spirit in the lives of people. And these people saw it. They never possessed it. They were around it, but was never a part of them. That's, that's, that's the idea uh, that he's saying here. And because... Believers are not associated with the Holy Spirit. You and I are not associated with the Holy Spirit. We're indwelt by. And there's a big difference. There's a big difference. The Holy Spirit is within us, guiding, leading, teaching, correcting, kicking us in the backside when necessary. That, but not these folks. They were just around that. They were just around it. That's what he's saying here. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 9, the great passage on, this is the passage that tells us there is now no condemnation than them that were in Christ Jesus, you know, all those kind of things. But here he says this, verse 9, For you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of God does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is, is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who indwells you. That's, 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 the, that's the difference here. These people did not, were not, were not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They were just associated with the people who were. That's, 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 the, that's the thrust that he's giving here. And then he comes back to taste it again. He says, they tasted the goodness of the word. Again, they didn't feast, they only tasted. And here again, the wording is careful. Usually in Scripture, when, we, when this bold term, the word of God, is used, it says the logos. Here it's not using the logos, it's using the rema. rema. It means the parts. They heard parts of the Scripture, not the whole. It doesn't mean the whole Word of God was something that was a part of their lives. This means they knew some of it. Uh, they knew something about it. They knew a little bit about it. They're like every adult male in the world who speaks English knows the passage in Ephesians that says, Wives, submit to your husbands. They don't talk about the rest of it, though. You know, They don't talk about the kind of man that is supposed to be, the one who would give his very life for his wife. You know, who puts her, who only puts Christ above her, ultimately. Uh, you know, but that's, that's, the, uh, that's the idea here. Uh, that's the idea that's being expressed here. They knew a little bit about the Word. They didn't really know the Word. Uh, they didn't know the whole. <clears throat> Jeremiah speaks of the Word, and he says, I found the Word, and I ate it. I made it a part of me. I digested it. Jeremiah 15, 6. He says, you didn't 
I didn't choose you, you chose me. We have to remember that. Matthew 7, 28. The crowd marveled at Jesus' teachings, but they were the same crowd that would later cry for him to be crucified. That's this group of people. That's, that's who we're talking about here. Well, these people weren't part of the crucifixion. They were 60 years later, but, but well, no, 30, 30-something years later. If you're going to do math in your head, you better be able to do it. You know, anyway. Uh, but number five, he said they tasted the power of the age to come. The age to come means the, the millennial kingdom is really what is being spoken of here. Uh, the future age, the 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 time of that uh, uh, of of the time the, that particular time. You know, and, he, and he's saying here they. They knew about the miracles of Jesus and the apostles. Now, they weren't witness to them, not these folks, but they knew about them. Uh, they knew about the things that had happened. Those, those truths had been, they had heard, and they had uh, probably seen even, maybe some of them may have seen some of them. Uh, but for the most part, they would, would have not have been eyewitnesses to those things. But they knew about it. They knew what had been done. And, and this all pictures the power of the millennial kingdom. Basically, the church fellowship in its truest form shows the fellowship that will be perfect in the time of eternity. We are a small picture of that. Uh, Stanley Toussaint, in his uh, professor of New Testament at Dallas Seminary, I think he's, he's long since, he may have passed by now, I don't really remember. But anyway, um, he, uh, he wrote a commentary on Matthew called Behold Your King. And in that commentary, he makes this interesting statement. He says that Christians, you and I, we are the germinal seed of kingdom citizenry. That's an interesting thought, you know. We're that, we're that beginning of the kingdom, uh, kingdom, kingdom citizens. And that's what he's saying here. They were around kingdom citizens. They saw what it was like, what, the, what eternity, a small taste of what eternity was going to be. Uh, that's, that's, what he, that's what he's saying here. But once again, they, they only tasted it. They only tasted it. <clears throat> All of these advantages should have drawn them to the table. But they were on a diet. A starvation diet. They stayed at arm's length. They didn't come near. Paul reminds all of us, 2 Corinthians 13.5, Test yourselves to see that you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Know that it's true. It's a very important, very important and very uh, timely reminder. Well, then he goes on, and we're going to pick up now verse 6, but we're going to have to go back and do a little bit of here, because we need to understand that he is indeed talking to a very specific group of people. Most of this this book is, of course, written to believers. It's written to you and me. It's written, well, primarily Jewish believers to help them in their understanding of Messiah, but nevertheless, to you and me. And it has import to all of us. Uh, because it is, of course, the inerrant Word of God. And it, uh, it, it is used to correct and, and to teach and to make us strong and whole in Him. But in this context, because of this group of people, because of the immaturity that was in this group of people, because of their lack of deep-rooted uh, faith, uh, there were those that were just hanging around. And to them he has to speak. And here we, we see that very clearly because he says, he says in verse, 
verse 4, he says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. And then verse 6, he says, And then have fallen away. So there is this group. Uh, This is is a group of non-believers who have been in the church. Now, how do we know it's a completely different group? Because verse 9, which we'll get to next week, but we're going to touch on it this morning. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, you didn't hear beloved in the earlier part of chapter 6, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So this is bookend. This is a specific group of people that are within the church that he's speaking to. And this kind of demonstrates that. Because he's going to get back in verse 9 to talking to the believers. But here he's trying to warn those. Those people that are sitting in the pews, taking up space. Maybe hearing the word of God, but not receiving it. Maybe not even listening. But at any rate, kind of like that history class we talked about earlier. You know. But anyway... Anyway, that's, that's the idea. These are unsaved, unsaved individual church attendees that maybe even have professed repentance, according to verse 4. They may have professed it, but they never possessed it. But they have, and they have, they've had to some extent experienced the work of God. They may have even taught a Sunday school class or a Bible study. My, uh, I was raised in the United Methodist Church. My parents left when we were in our early teens. I think the straw that broke the camel's back was we went to church and the preacher's message that day was uh, why they shouldn't have Sunday harness racing at Hollywood Park. And his thesis was it would keep people out of church. And at 12, 13 years old, I go, why would people not go to church to go to a harness race? But nevertheless, go down the street here a little ways. Well, they're probably not there today. They probably can't see the fields. Go down the street here a little bit and see how many hundreds of people are playing soccer at your taxpayer's expense. (laughs) You know? So maybe people do stop going to church for other things. Uh, But uh, I never could understand that. But that's why we went away. But my aunt and uncle stayed in it for a long time, and my aunt came came to me one day. And she was a true believer, but she's one of those that fell asleep in a liberal church, you know. And and, uh, she came to me one day, and she says, you know, we got a new pastor, and he's going to teach Jonah. And I said, really? And she said, yeah. And she says, but you know what he said? He said, it's all a myth. And I said, then why are you bothering to study it? You might as well read Aesop's fables. Aesop's fables. You know? There are those kind of people. There are people who say they're part of the eldership. Who are not. They're not even part of the church. And that's what, Paul, that's what, that's what the author of Hebrews is writing about. The, the author now turns... Uh, uh, now the author in his turning now is talking about the time of salvation. And that's, that's the important thing here. He's, he's making a point here. There is a time in which one can be saved. There is also a time, and chapter 10 is going to make this very clear, when God is done with you. 
There's a time when salvation is no longer available. We don't know when that is. None of us. Uh, Kathy's uncle was saved the night before he died. I mean, God may take it that long, but there's also a point where he's just done. Um, and that's, that's, what, that's what's being talked about here in, in verse 6. He says, and, and then have fallen away to be restored again to repentance. He says the word, it's impossible for that to happen. That's what he says. Now, there are texts, there are translations <clears throat> that translate the word impossible as difficult, meaning it's really hard to come back. The problem is, how is impossible used in the book of Hebrews? Well, I'm going to tell you. In chapter 6, verse 18, it says, It's impossible for God to lie. I don't want that to read difficult for God to lie. Impossible, he cannot. There are things God can't do. He can't lie. That's, he can't lie. Uh, in chapter 10, verse 4, It says that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It could only cover it for a year. It couldn't take it away. It's impossible. I don't want that to say difficult to you. It's impossible. In chapter chapter 11, verse 6, it says it's impossible to please God without faith. It doesn't say... Well, it's kind of hard, but you can get away with it. It doesn't say that. Well, it doesn't say it here either. It's the same word. It's impossible. It means there is no possibility of it. That's what it means. There's no possibility of it. Now, understand something very carefully, and I put in your text in a a special little thing of brackets within this line here, just a bunch of security passages uh, that are in here. But for the true believer, you can never be lost. God chose you from before the foundations of the earth. He imparted his Holy Spirit to you. Uh, John 10 tells us that we're held in the hand of God. We're held in the hand. We're held in the hand of Jesus. Romans tells us that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. You understand that what it would take for you to lose your salvation is is Satan had to break the seal of the Holy Spirit, loose the hand of Jesus, and, and weaken the hand of God to pull you out. That's what it would take. I think that falls under the word impossible. That's, that's, that's the reality. Uh, once you're in Christ, you're there. And it was chosen before you ever were. In fact, before the planet ever was. Don't ask me to explain that. I've had years of seminary, and I have no idea how God and his glorious, infinite knowledge planned that. But I'm sure glad he did. And it's all in his hands. It's all in his hands. Roman 8 tells us there is now no condemnation. So I, I just put a list of those in there, because a lot of people use this text to say you can lose your salvation. But that's not what the text is saying. It's saying those who never were and continually to reject, and who have had all the advantages of the church, and have turned their back on them, it's impossible to bring them back. That's what he's saying in this text. Those who have lived in the sphere of Christianity, and the work of the Holy Spirit, and of God's graciousness, and thumbed their nose at it, 
get their just desserts. That's ultimately what this text is saying. The loss of salvation, there is no loss of salvation for the believer here. What it's speaking of is the opportunity for those who are in the sphere of salvation to be saved. This is a, this is a frightening, frightening to me, a frightening statement. He says it's impossible. It's impossible. For those who have had all of these advantages, and then to say, eh, and walk away. That's, that's what this is saying. It says to, re, to restore. It's impossible to, 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 to restore or renew. And, it, and this word means to bring back to original condi- condition. And it, 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 uh, it basically pictures that they were right there, but never completed it. And it's possible to bring them back. It's possible to bring them back to that state. It's possible to bring them back to that state where they would bend the knee, but they didn't. That's, 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 what, he's, that's what he's saying to them. It's impossible to do that. Yeah. It's kind of similar to God hardening Pharaoh's heart. That was my next example. <laughs> By the way, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. That, that's the absolute perfect example, except for I lost where I put it. I had the text. Oh, yeah. Um, when we get to when we get to Hebrews chapter ten, <clears throat> and uh, uh, we read we read uh, a passage like this one, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the ones who have trampled underfoot the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was he was sanctified? And outraged the spirit of grace. And then it goes on to say, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. That's, that's, that's the text here, these folks. And, and the, the prime example of that is if you go to Exodus chapter 7 through 12, which is Moses coming before Pharaoh. And Moses comes before Pharaoh a number of times, and I think it's at the frog judgment uh, that it. It all changes, but it, it says it says this. It says Moses came before Pharaoh and he said, "Let my people go." And it says Pharaoh hardened his heart and wouldn't do it. And it says that several times. Moses comes, let my people go. Pharaoh hardens his heart. Let my people go. Pharaoh hardens his heart. And then I think it's in I think it's the f- frog uh, uh, judgment. It says Moses comes before Pharaoh. It says, let my people go. And then the text says the most damning word you ever want to hear. God hardened his heart. Salvation was no longer possible for the Egyptians at that point. That's, that's what that indicates. Exactly what that indicates. And that's what he's talking about here. That's, that's the very fact he's talking about here. When they say, <clears throat> in verse 6, when he says... Uh, It, it, he's talking about they did it to themselves. Here is the idea that he's he's, he's it, it means that they did it they they did it as uh, uh, as far as as they were concerned they did it to themselves. 
You know, they just they did it to themselves. And, and he goes on and says, he says, what they did is they put themselves in the same boat. Let me go back and read the text again. And those who have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. What he's saying is here is they took their stand with those who cried crucify him. That's what this is saying. That's what these people did. Those people who came within the sphere of salvation in the community of the saved, who, who saw all the advantages that were there, but said, no, I don't want any part of this. <clears throat> and they walked away. Who they hardened their hearts, and then God hardened them. And they walked away. It's basically saying they stood with those who yelled, crucify him. That's, that's what he's saying here. And he goes on to say that, that they put him to open shame while they, didn't nail, while they didn't hammer the nails themselves. It's literally saying that's what they did. They were a part of it. They were a part of hammering the nails. This is a frightening passage. It's an extremely frightening passage to those people who hang around the church but never commit. 1 John 1, 9. No, 1 John... Two nine, I think it is. I forgot. Oh, well, I should write things down. Uh, anyway, basically says they went out from us because they were never part of us. That's, that's what John says about them, about these, these folks. These people, by their own choice, withdrew from the sphere of redemption. They took themselves away from it. And they stand with those who crucified Jesus Christ, the Son of God. They joined the ranks of people like Simon Magnus, who was baptized, but yet was an apostate. Well, actually, even did Christian labor. Of Demas, who had been a preacher, but Paul condemned as an apostate. And perhaps the most notorious apostate of all, Judas Iscariot. They joined those ranks. That's who these people are. That's their company. And then he drives all of this home with a very interesting illustration. It's a very simple one. It's a very plain one. And I think it's kind of self-explanatory. <clears throat> but I'll talk about it anyway. For the land has drunk the rain that often falls on it. Well, it probably falls more in Israel than it does in Bakersfield. But we've had a little bit of rain. So you remember rain now. It says, for the land, for the land has drunk the rain and often falls on it. It produces a crop useful for those... Those whose sake it is cultivated receive a blessing from God. I had a, an uncle who was a dryland cotton farmer in the panhandle of Texas, uh, you know, and he depended on the rain for his living. And that's, he cultivated the land, he planted cotton, he harvested the cotton, and the rain made it grow. That's what this is saying. God sends the rain on the just and the unjust. He sends the rain, and the rain, the rain can do one of two things. It, 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 for, it can grow crops, useful crops. I, I enjoyed some fruit this morning before coming to church. You know, and I'm glad for the farmers who produce it because I can't grow anything. But nevertheless, that, that's the point. Uh, I have a third acre lot and about half of it is developed and the other half I used to own a trucking company. I parked rig back there and, and as a result I never did anything with it. 
And uh, the rain falls on the front part, and the grass is green, and the roses grow, and the trees are nice and pretty, and it falls on the back, and it's verse 9, or verse 8. They're weeds, you know. And I used to go out there and knock them down. Now I hired somebody to do it because I just got too old to put up with that whole lot. <laughs> but at any rate, but at any rate, that's what this is saying here. He's saying the rain falls. God sends the rain. And those who keep themselves in the sphere of salvation and bend the knee to Jesus Christ are a bountiful crop bringing glory and honor to his name. But there's another group that that rain also falls on. And they are thorns and thistles. And they are only fit for one thing. Burning. They don't let us burn here anymore, but, you know, that's what they're fit for. Burning. It's a picture of what he's saying here. The apostate is the thorn and thistle in the church whose end will be eternal burning and damnation. This is a serious, serious passage. It's a very serious passage. And it's one that just reminds me of why Pastor Steve at the end of every message gives an invitation. You know, there was a day when I thought, why do churches always give invitations at the end? Aren't we all believers? Well, now I've come to understand, no, because we're not. It's because we're not. It's because there are people here who don't believe. And there are people here who may, may have even, though it's rig- I really appreciate, I have to tell you, being relatively new here and having been <clears throat> around the church for a long time, I really appreciate it coming here and what they put me through to become a member. You know, they try to weed this out. They try to make sure. They really, as much as humanly possible, they try to make sure. And I appreciated that. And I thought, this is the way every church should do it. Because I've seen churches just accept a person under discipline from another church and just accept them because it's a new, fresh body. You know? And it's just, it's just dangerous. It's just dangerous. And that, that's the picture here. The picture here is, there's an assembly, and it's got a bunch of weak-minded Christians in it. And within those weak-minded Christians are mindless non-Christians. Incidentally, in Ephesians, that's what Paul says. The unsaved, they're mindless. They're empty-headed. That's what it says in the Greek. It's literal. Uh, so here, here's, here's what they have. And Paul, and not Paul, but the author of Hebrews, I keep putting my prejudice into it. But anyway, uh, the author of Hebrews says, says, they need to be careful. They need to be aware. They've experienced the goodness of God within the assembly of his people. And if they don't bend the knee, if they don't come to Christ in faith, their end is worse than their beginning. It would have been better they never heard one word. I mean, they're still going to burn, but the fire will be hotter, I guess. But at any rate, that, that's the picture here. It's a, it's, a, it's a horrific picture. Fortunately, we get back into a pretty picture in verse 9. 
we can start talking to save people again. But this is a, this is a warning we all need to remember. We need to, to look at ourselves, look at our loved ones that are that are in the family that are within the, the family of God. Is it sure? Doctor McGee once again said he asked his his daughter until she was almost thirty years old. Is it real? You know, and and that's a reality that you have to you have to make sure of. Is it real? Because with your children, you're not really going to know till they're adults. For those of you that have younger children, that you're not going to know until they're adults. That's when you find out, was it real? Any comments or questions this morning? <clears throat> I'm out of throat today. Okay, let's, let's pray and close. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for the grace that uh, you have shown to, to us through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that in, in, in your eternal plan, you chose to call us to your glory. And Father, we just ask that uh, uh, we would remain worthy always of the honor you've bestowed upon us, that we would glorify you and we would glorify your Son in all that we do and all that we say, and that we would be mindful of those around us. We'd be mindful of all men. We would be ready to share the gospel at every opportunity you give us, but we would be specifically mindful of those within the family here, those that hang around us, to make sure they are hearing and receiving and understanding the gospel. Not that it is our job to save them, because your spirit is the one who does that. But, Father, we would be ever vigilant to be ready uh, to be called into service on your behalf, and that we would glorify your name in all the things that we do. And I ask your blessing upon this assembly here today, upon this church, upon these people, and I thank you for the faithfulness uh, that I have seen here to, to our Lord and Savior, and just ask that that would continue, that in all things we would glorify you. For it's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen.